I'm Chris Meyer. I get the duty this morning, the privilege this morning of bringing the word in. Um, boy, do we have a lot to talk about. But before we do that, I'm going to add one announcement to what we already have said this morning, and that's that we have a returning old friend from, uh, oh goodness, 2010? Yeah, right, right, right about that. Um, Pri, Priyanke came from Sri Lanka, and he came to Warm Beach Camp and interned there uh, in learning how to run a camp like Warm Beach because he had a vision uh, to start a ministry in Sri Lanka that would uh, be able to uh, afford people a place to come and that in that context, God would be able to do his work. So, Pri, would you stand up for a moment so people can see you? Welcome back after all these years. Miriam, I've yet to meet you, but it's nice to see you, if, if, but from a distance. And, and we have, is this Alida? Alida, who is three months old, and so if you hear one of those sweet little irresistible voices during the sermon this morning, that's probably who it is. Pri is going to have some brochures and cards with uh, web addresses and ways that you can learn more about his ministry, and they are out on the information table in the foyer. Uh, he's going to be hanging out a little bit after the service, I think. Uh, so if you want to catch up with him, those of you who remember him from all those years ago, or if you want to meet him and find out more about the ministry and what he's doing in Sri Lanka, then uh, by all means hang out and he'll be out there. So those of you who've been with us in Sunday School over the last month are aware that we're working on a series uh, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the, the Reformation. 500 years ago last month, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. The door of the church was, I am told, a place where you could do such things. They would post things on the door. So this was not an act of vandalism, in case you were wondering if Luther was like, I mean, he was, he was kind of pushing against the established conventions, but uh, he was not uh, advocating violence. His 95 theses were an invitation for there to be a scholarly debate about something that the Catholic Church had uh, instituted uh, called a, uh, indulgences. And so I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on this because it sets the context for what we're going to talk about this morning here. Indulgences were a certificate. They were given to a person who had done something to earn the indulgence, and the indulgence was a statement of merit, which would then be credited to the spiritual account of either that person or a person who is dead. And what this would do is reduce the penalty for sin, the temporal penalty for sin, that the person would be experiencing in purgatory after death. Now, A, I am not a Catholic theologian, and B, we're not going to focus on those issues this morning, but it's a little bit of background. Luther did not like how this was being done. Um, the money that was being generated by these indulgences, because you could get them in a variety of ways. You could go to a particular cathedral, you could 
visit a place where there were relics of a particular saint. Uh, there were prayers and rituals that you could perform, and you would get these certificates. Um, and, and in some cases, money was exchanged for the certificates, and this money was used for a variety of things. It had been used to fund the, some of the Crusades, uh, and it was also used to fund the uh, building of St. Peter's Basilica in, in the, at the Vatican. Luther didn't like the way that these things were being authorized, the way that they were being collected, the way that they were being administered, and so he wrote these 95 theses, which were challenges to these ideas of what was being done, and he posted them on the door, and the point of it was to initiate or invite people to come and have a scholarly debate about what are we doing? What are we doing, and why are we doing it like this? Because I don't think this is that healthy. That's my, my two-sentence summary of Luther's 95 Theses. My apologies. <laughs> Now, during the Protestant Reformation that was sparked by a number of men, including Luther, a core of important theological truths were uh, brought together. And these teachings have characterized Protestant churches uh, ever since then. So we've been talking in Sunday school about these five solas. Sola is the Greek word for only or solely. And there are five. Sola Scriptura. Uh, scripture alone being our authority, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, Christ alone, sola Christus, uh, sorry, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. These became the, the core of the reformers' teachings that they were hoping would reform the Catholic Church, that there would be a, not a revolution to overthrow the church, but a work of renewal and clarification and correction of teaching. This morning, we're gonna look at the truth that we are saved by grace alone. And I have been musing about this all week and, and feeling somewhat overwhelmed and, and woefully inadequate. And last night I, I was watching a, a John Piper clip and he was talking about the, the five solos and, and it was his introduction to a video series that he did. And I had to laugh because you know, John Piper's a pretty well-known guy and pretty smart guy, pretty good theologian. And he said, you know, I feel woefully inadequate and really overwhelmed. <laughs> I thought, okay. I'm, I'm in good company. And, and maybe what this means is that if anybody gets up and thinks that they've got topics that are this big, completely nailed down, and that they understand the breadth and the depth of, of something like the grace of God, they should probably sit down because they're probably deluded in some important ways. So I want to press on and consider this, even though it is a huge topic and Many volumes have been written over the years trying to capture the breadth and the depth of the grace of God and this doctrine that we are saved by grace alone. Will you pray with me this morning? Uh, what I want to do is I'm, I'm going to barrage you with a lot of scripture and I'm gonna let it talk more and me talk less if that's possible and, and may the Holy Spirit speak to us.
through his word. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we are so blessed to know you, to have been brought into your family. We are so blessed to be in this body. We're so blessed to have your Holy Spirit living inside of us. God, your word says that we cannot understand spiritual truths without your Holy Spirit opening our eyes and our hearts. So we come to you this morning and we pray that you would do just that and that when we're done here in a little while, we will each walk away with a refreshed sense of what you have done for us. And for those, Lord, who don't know you yet or don't know you well, we pray that they will know better just how much you love us and how you have expressed that love in Christ. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to go quickly. This is kind of like, you know what those military helicopters look like when they're flying kind of low but really fast? You ever wonder what the ground looks like to those folks? It's, it's going by at a little bit of a blur. But they're high enough up that they can kind of see what's coming. We're going to go fast over a lot of stuff this morning. And I'm just going to trust that God and the Holy Spirit is going to be working and speaking to you like he's been speaking to me throughout the course of the week. Let's turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. We will be in Ephesians a lot this morning, and we're going to be in Romans quite a bit as well. Be reading from the uh, English Standard Version uh, for the most part. And everything should be up on screen. Thank you, Tamara. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. There's a lot of sermons in what I just read. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones took about a dozen sermons to get through just that passage. Paul says, so, so we are going to summarize and highlight this morning as opposed to being exhaustive. So what do we have here? Paul says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now that does not sound like anything was held back. We're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be adopted to God through Jesus Christ. According to his purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace, we have redemption, forgiveness of our sins, and riches of grace lavished upon us. What is this grace? The, the Greek word is uh, charis, 
It's the first part of the word charismatic, that way we get the, the grace gifts. And it means favor or kindness, a gift or a blessing. There's actually a sense in the language of God being inclined toward us or leaning in, drawing closer to bestow a blessing. I thought that was wonderful in the language. There's a sense of God coming near, God leaning into me, God coming close to deliver something to me. What a, what a cool concept. Now because it's a gift, it's often described as unmerited favor. Those of you Awana graduates, I'm sure, have heard unmerited favor a lot. And this is illustrated very well in a passage in Romans chapter four. Verses one through eight. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, I love verses four and five because they make this clear in a way that we can all grasp. If you work for your paycheck and you actually get a paycheck, do you walk away thinking, wow, not really sure why they gave me all this money. Guess I got lucky today, huh? <laughs> I don't think that when I'm going to the bank, I don't know about you guys, but I bet you when you get paid, you're well aware of all the work you've done for that and you don't think I just got lucky you think I'm getting what I have coming to me. That's if you actually get paid. Those of you who are self-employed know that you don't always get what you have coming to you, but that's a whole other story. I've earned this, it is reasonable for me to get it. Now that's in contrast with this other way of thinking which says, I am not working. I know that working is not going to save me but I believe in a God who justifies the ungodly. That is the way of grace. If you worked for it and he gave it to you, you'd go, okay, I got what I, I, got what I had coming. This is, this is kind of fair, kind of matches up with our sense of justice and the way things ought to be. Grace is, grace is, grace is weird. It stands the whole thing on its head. You don't get what you deserve. In fact, there's nothing that you could do to earn what we got. We believe in a God who justifies the ungodly. But that's weird because that's, that's before repentance. That's before sanctification. A God who justifies the ungodly. <laughs> wow. Now to highlight the extent to which this grace is unmerited, let's continue reading back in Ephesians. 
Paul sets the scene here, gives us the backstory to what was going on with the Ephesians when God bestowed these amazing blessings on them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And seated us up with him, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Could they have been more unworthy of God's grace? What's it say about them? Dead in trespasses and sins, following the world and the devil, living out the passions of the flesh, by nature children of wrath. And if you didn't catch this before, that's just like all of us, just like the rest of mankind. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, your educational background, your annual income, your retirement account, your length of time you've been a Christian, how many good works you've done, none of it matters. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, because while we were yet sinners, that's when Christ came and died to reconcile us to God. So it's not like we got good, and then he noticed how good we got, and then decided, hey, that's that's worth saving. I think I'll go get those, those folks. Quite the opposite, quite the opposite. Dead in trespasses and sins like the rest of mankind, but God, you notice that? He lays it out and it looks pretty grim. And then he says, but God. These are some of the best words in the New Testament, but God. We were in such a condition, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had for us, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He doesn't want them or us to miss this. We were dead. We were under judgment. We were by nature children of wrath, but he didn't leave us there. He was rich in mercy. He had a great love for us. He made us alive together with Christ. 
He seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. Are you getting who's the driving force for all this? On your worst days, do you ever feel like it somehow is up to you to kind of maintain this salvation? Or maybe to get this salvation to begin with? But what does the Bible say about who the driving force is for every part of our salvation? It's him. He thought it up before the foundation of the world, it says. That's pretty weird. I, I don't even know how to think about that. But he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It was his idea. It was already a done deal before you ever came along in anybody's mind as a good idea. He already had an idea about you. I don't know what that does for you. I, to me, it just makes, my shake, makes me shake my head. I'm about ready to go to a chiropractor this week because I've been shaking my head all week. It's nuts. It's crazy. Why would he do this? I mean, he tells us why he does it. It's because of his great love that he loves us with. But why? I don't know. It's been like a, a David in Psalms, what is man that thou art mindful of him kind of week for me. You meditate on this stuff. You start feeling really small and God starts getting really big. It's fun. Now this presentation that we just looked at in Ephesians is a familiar way for Paul to talk about the gospel. So let's go back to Romans for a little bit. Paul has spent the first three chapters of the book of Romans describing how no one, not Jews, not Greeks, not anybody, is right. It has an excuse before God that we are all guilty under the law, and none of us has an excuse. So now he comes to chapter 3, and he's going to give us his conclusion. Romans three nineteen through 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, we got these great words again. But now, this is our situation. Look, at it's grim. People were dead and were accountable and were helpless. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, how? By his grace. A gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show the righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the same thing we just read in Ephesians. We are dead, dead under the law, unable to justify ourselves by keeping the law, but now, and again we have the wonderful transition to, te to, to take our focus 
to the, to the gift of grace. Let's go back to Ephesians, this time in chapter two. We're gonna reread some section here. But God, being rich in mercy, why? Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he inserts like this parentheses, for by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why that? Well, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's a gift. It doesn't mean that because you're saved by grace, we therefore live in any way that we choose and disregard the importance of good works or progressing in our sanctification, becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus. Those things are hugely important. And if we had time, if we had about a week, we could look at Romans chapters five and six and seven and eight, and you'd see Paul saying, look, yes, you're not under the law anymore. You are saved by grace. But what are we gonna say? If we're, you know, if it's by grace, shall we sin? The grace may abound. And he spends all of chapter six telling us why that doesn't make any sense. And then he gets to chapter seven, and well, what are we gonna say? Is the law bad? Well, no, the law's not bad. But the law had a problem. The law's problem was us. Right? We're gonna get to that in just a little bit. Now, it's funny. We're chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He does this in spite of the fact that we have nothing to give that could make us worthy. The scripture says that our righteousness, our best shot, man at his best, the the most uh, holy or righteous or religious person you can think of, man at his best, our righteousness is as filthy rags. All right, if, 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 if we didn't need any more emphasis here to underline the fact that we can't do it, there you go. Our best shot, our righteousness, it doesn't even get up into the rank of clean clothes, let alone good clothes. It's filthy rags. It doesn't even get on the, it doesn't even get on the continuum. Max Lucado in his book, In the Grip of Grace, uses an illustration that I, I like a lot. He talks, about, he talks about the holiness of God being like the distance between the earth and the moon. And getting to the moon would be like achieving that standard of God's holiness. Now, I might be able to jump two feet, or actually, maybe only 18 inches or so now. Maybe you can jump six or seven feet. We're talking about the distance between here and the moon. How significant is your six or seven feet or my 18 inches? It doesn't, even, it doesn't even begin to bridge the gap. The gap was unbridgeable except by God. 
So we get this message that the law was important because it brings about the knowledge of sin. And if we go to, we're going to fast forward now to Romans 8, and we're going to get another crucial message about the law. I'm going to read it in its context here. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, why? Weak as it was through the flesh. Our flesh, us. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous, so, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I'm sorry, I read that in the New American Standard and you probably got it up there in the ESV so it's a little bit different but I really like this translation. What the law could not do, the law had a problem. It was weak through our flesh because we could not keep the law. The law was not able to save us. So God sends his son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin so that the law can be fulfilled. He was our representative. By living the law perfectly, keeping God's law perfectly, being sinless, and being our representative, he then took upon him our sin. It says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's our pathway. The law was fulfilled. Notice that God did not just dismiss the law. He fulfilled the law. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, wink, wink, we can just let that go. That would be a little bit weird, right? Because the law was an expression of the holiness of God. You couldn't just like say, here it is, and then dismiss it as though it had somehow become meaningless. No, he didn't dismiss the law. He fulfilled the law and paid the penalty for sin that the law required. The penalty for you, the penalty for me, for all who believe in him. I don't know what that does for you this morning. This makes me shake my head. I still keep coming back to why, why would he do this? I know he has this great love for us, but I, I still am just mind boggled this morning. I told Annie, I'm, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to stutter and stammer and shake my head. They're going to think I'm speaking in tugs and, and ask for an interpretation. Honestly, I get speechless at times in trying to capture this. I, I, don't, I don't know how to describe this at, in a way that feels adequate, which is one reason why I wanted to read a lot of scripture for you this morning and kind of let the scripture through the Holy Spirit speak for itself. He is just and the justifier of those who believe in him. He is just in that he fulfilled the law on our behalf and he therefore becomes our justifier. 
Sola gracia. By grace alone. Not of works, it's the gift of God. So, what does that actually mean for you and me today? I mean, this is core Protestant theology. You guys have heard this stuff a million times, probably most of you, right? What does it really mean for us today that this is completely an act of grace? It means a lot of things, and I'm not going to try to tag them all, but I want to tag the one that's been on my mind personally the most prominently in in recent weeks. And there's kind of two parts to this for me. Uh, the, The first thing is that since I did not earn this salvation in the first place, since it is purely of grace, it does not depend on me to keep it. He keeps me. Jesus said, no one can snatch me out of the Father's hand. I'm not just saved by grace, I'm also kept by grace. The second thing kind of flows out of that first thing. If I'm saved by grace, and if I'm kept by grace, if I am adopted into his family, then I serve him like a son serves a father, out of devotion and out of gratitude. Not because I need to earn his favor, but because I have his favor. Are you with me? We don't need to earn his favor. It has been given to us. That is, that's what grace means, it's favor. It's like we've entered the king's throne room and he has given us his favor. We don't need to earn it. But what does that do inside of you once you know that this is the king's posture towards you? What does the scripture say? He who is forgiven much loves much. Right? Do you know what you're forgiven this morning? Do you know the depth of the gift? The more you know the depth of the gift, the more you serve him like a child serving its father out of gratitude and out of devotion. Not out of debt, not out of I've got to pay him back. It's been on my mind because I have a tendency that I have found not uncommon that when I sin, I slip into thinking that God on some, in some way must love me less than he usually does or than he does when I'm doing better. You see how subtle that is? It's wrong. It's a losing sight of grace. <laughs> but I still feel that way sometimes. And I would be willing to bet that if I polled you guys, you'd probably say the same thing. But when we sin, and we slip into thinking that somehow God might love us a little less now because we've sinned, we have forgotten sola gracia. We have forgotten the great love with which he has loved us that prompted the whole sending of Jesus. We were forgotten. He cannot love you anymore than he already loves you. And his love is not like the stock market that fluctuates depending on what you're doing. Steady, solid, complete. You cannot, you can't lose this. If you could lose this, 
I, I, I don't know. I think we would all have anxiety disorders. You can't lose it. You didn't earn it to begin with. You are saved by grace. You are kept by grace. And you do not lose his love when you slip. The scripture says in Romans 5.10 that if, if, for, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If God would do that for you while you're his enemy, what's his posture towards you today now that you're reconciled? Secure. That's what that is. Boy, I just pray that this keeps settling into my soul on a deeper level, and I pray the same for you guys. Because when you're that secure, you have the greatest motivation to serve out of gratitude. That old slavish mentality of I've got to somehow save myself by my works. Oh my gosh, what a drudgery. What a hopeless situation. How would you think about serving if that's the way it was set up? I would think about it like it was a drudgery. And it would be filled, it would be tinged with fear. We don't serve that way. We don't have to serve that way. When you know you're this solid and this grace, you're just full of thankfulness. You're full of gratitude. I just pray that this morning your sense of this will deepen and and our sense of devotion, of gratitude, of desire to please him just because we love him will fuel your desire to put to death the deeds of the body, will fuel your desire to participate in good works and bear fruit for him. Not because we gotta pay him back, but because we love him and, and we wanna please him. Oh God, may that settle into our souls more deeply this morning. I want you to stand with me this morning and we're going to end the service a little bit differently. I want to at least end the sermon part of the service a little bit differently. I want you to stand with me and I want to read, I want you to read with me through the better part of the first chapter of Ephesians. We're going to start in verse 3 and we're going to go through verse 14. And, and I'll, I'm just going to give you a warning. This is one of those passages that has clause after clause after clause after clause. It's all connected because it's hard to take it apart and not talk about the whole thing all at once. So it may be a little awkward to read. But I want to read this with you. I want you to, to take this in. I, want, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will work this good word in your hearts today, in all of our hearts today. Please read with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen.